Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, February 3rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's Wild Card episode, we're talking healthcare. We know we know our listeners out there love healthcare on Wednesdays, so we're bringing you on Wednesday with some healthcare here. Specifically, we're going to dig into a brand spanking new IPO in the healthcare space. And actually, this was a former subsidiary of Johnson and Johnson. The company is called Ortho Clinical Diagnosis. The ticker, or I'm sorry, Diagnostics. The ticker is OCDX. Joining me this week, it's Mr. Brian Feroldi. Brian. Feraldi. I always do that, Brian. It's Feraldi. It's not Feraldi. It's Feraldi. Jason, you can, you can call me whatever you want. As long <laughs> as you invite me on Wildcard Wednesday for healthcare, you can call me whatever you want. Brian, it is great to be back in the virtual studio with you. Like you said, it's been too long. Yes, it has. And it's always fun to talk uh, uh, healthcare. And it's always fun to look at new IPOs when, when they come out. And uh, to your point, this is, a, this is an interesting company that just uh, became publicly traded. It was a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and it's been in business for over 80 years. So it's going to be interesting to dig into this one. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we were digging around trying to, to look at things to talk about in the healthcare space. And this was one that really, really just, just started trading. I think Thursday is when it really first started trading. So this this is a brand new IPO, and I, t- I tell you, when I was looking through the S one for this business, I mean, I, you know, it, it's got its puts and takes, but it definitely it definitely plays in a market I've not given a whole heck of a lot of attention to, but it seems like it would be pretty relevant in today's uh, day and age. And so let's just start off with what they actually do, because this is essentially kind of like a testing company, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. So, uh, orthoclinical diagnostics is focused on uh, in vitro uh, diagnostics, and they have two primary uh, business lines. Uh, the first is uh, clinical laboratory uh, testing and equipment, and the second is uh, transfusion uh, medicine. So, the clinical laboratory equipment market is used to measure uh, chemicals in bodily uh, fluids. So, if you've ever gone to uh, a hospital and had your your blood drawn so they could get tested uh, for for everything that could be going on in there. That's what this company does. It makes the machines as well as the disposables that enable that to happen. Uh, that's its primary market. Its secondary market is transfusion medicine, uh, which is where it's testing uh, donor blood and plasma to be screened uh, to make sure there's no diseases or anything wrong with it for it so it can be used in transfusion. So that's the primary markets that this company operates in. Yeah, and I was reading through that S1, and the first thing, the thing that caught my eye just whenever I see a pure, whenever I see the words pure play, I'm immediately like, ooh, wow. Wow, these these guys are really they specialize in something. This could be pretty pretty interesting. And in, in uh, pure play in vitro diagnostics business, and in fun fact here, in vitro is Latin for within the glass. It's when something is performed outside of a living organism. So hey, there's your fun fact for the day. Uh, but but I, the, the credo here, and you, you have a hard time not getting behind a company with this type of perspective. The credo of this business is because every test is a life, and certainly over the past year, we've seen the value in uh, 
robust testing capability. And, and it feels like we probably learned a lot here along the way that our testing capabilities probably need to get a little bit better. And, and maybe uh, maybe OrthoClinical is, is one of those companies that can help make that happen. You keyed in on something that really caught my attention, though, and that is the uh, the, that's the, the, the consumables, right? The disposables part of this business. I mean, anytime you have a business where that razor and blade model comes into play, that really gets my attention. What do you think about that as an advantage for a business like this? I completely agree. I mean, the business model that uh, a lot of successful medical device companies like this uh, pursue is the razor and blade model, where you place some type of system or equipment in a uh, in, with a healthcare provider, and then you don't make money necessarily off the placement of the system. You make money off of the usage of the systems. So that aligns the incentives for, hey, use this thing, make it uh, make it a part of your clinic, and that's how the company makes uh, more and more and more money. And to this company's uh, credit, they've done they've been around for eighty years, and they've done a great job at entrenching themselves in the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, the association with Johnson and Johnson was definitely a leg up for this company, but uh, they are in over seventy percent of all U.S. Uh, hospitals, and they're a global company uh, too. They do business in one hundred and thirty. Uh, countries and they service or test over 800,000 patients per day. And yes, that does include uh, COVID testing. That was a recent pivot for the the company, but they do uh, testing on all kinds of things. So when it comes to diagnostic testing, this is a big player. Yeah, and I mean, I saw some really impressive numbers. In uh, in 2019, the consumables contributed more than 90% of total revenue which I mean, to your point there, that's just that's that recurring revenue you love to see in any business. I wonder, as an investor, from your perspective, when you see a business like this, um, I mean, not necessarily like this. When you see a razor and blade business model, for example, you see a business that really does benefit from that high uh, consumable as a percentage of total revenue. Does that number, does that dynamic of the business model, do you feel like that? maybe gives them a little bit more wiggle room in other areas of the, of the business for you? Like maybe you'll give them a pass in certain areas where you might be a little bit more uh, critical. Yeah, I, I definitely does. I mean, to me, recurring revenue is something that a company almost must have at this point for me to be interested in it because there are so many fantastic businesses out there with recurring revenue. It's to me, it's almost like, well, why bother with the ones that don't have it? So, to your point, once this is in a clinic and it's part of the healthcare system, uh, or the hospital system, of course they're going to use it again and again and again, and that's almost like an annuity on not only revenue but high margin revenue uh, for for this company. So, yeah. That can that can cure a lot of other ills that a business might have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 who are their customers directly? I mean, I'm assuming this isn't typically. I mean, you and I as patients, we're not buying their services, or are we? I mean, is this how exactly does that work? Nope, their their customers are primarily the clinics and the hospitals. So as I said, they they're in over seventy percent of uh, hospitals in the U.S. and they do have a, a global footprint with about. Just under half of their revenue coming in the U.S. and about uh, more than half coming in uh, international uh, markets. But yeah, they're primarily selling to uh, to hospitals and hospital systems. So I feel like with a business like this, when you when you see that razor and blade business model, to me that's a competitive advantage. Maybe it's not as great of an advantage as it used to be because I think you're right. I think a lot of companies are really homing in on the benefits of that type of model, right? It's almost becoming like, if you're starting a business today, you better figure out a way to start a recurring revenue business, because that that just that gives you a leg up in, in so many different ways. But, but beyond the business model itself, um, or, or are there other dynamics of the business model, what are some of the advantages 
um, of this business? What are some of the competitive advantages that you find in a business like this? Well, to your point at the top of the show, I think one of their big advantages is that they're a pure play on the diagnostics market. And just the fact that they've been around for over 80 years really speaks to how entrenched this company has become in so many facets of the healthcare system. I love this stat uh, that they pull out. The average clinical laboratory has been a customer of theirs for over 13 years. And the average transfusion medicine customer has been a customer for over 15 years. That's on average. And in 2019, their revenue retention rate was 99%. So it's very hard for companies like this to land a customer to get their foot in the door. But once this company gets its foot in the door, man, is it hard to get rid of. Yeah. And it feels like that that time, I mean, that tells you a lot right there. Um, I mean, not only, I mean, of, of course it tells, tells us that clearly they're doing something right. Um, and, and that's always good to see. But, but also what comes with that, I think over time really I mean, it seems like there'd be some switching costs to develop from that. Tremendous switching costs. I think, and on on top of that, they also they also call out that they're they're they really promote the accuracy of their product. Uh, they really promote the speed of their product, the testing breadth breadth of the of their product. And uh, within the last couple of years, they've introduced five new products, uh, new uh, new assay uh, ass- assays. I hope I'm saying that right uh, I, I to expand so, yeah. expand their product offering. So uh, they're in there, and they're constantly innovating and putting new tests on the system, which just increases uh, the 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 need to keep this in your clinic. Why bother? switching when it's so useful. Yeah. And I bet you this is kind of like one of those chip companies that we'd probably see this as more time plays out and we get a better view of their financials as a publicly traded company. But I'd imagine keeping an eye on research and development, that R&D expense is a percentage of revenue. I mean, that's one of those things where a company like this is going to have to continue to invest in itself. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not the type of company that can just kind of come up with a couple of good tests and then call it a day. And they have done uh, just that. They have been one of the things they tout in their S one is how how much they've been investing in their their IT capabilities and their research and development and launching uh, new products. But yeah, to your point, this is a company that you don't want to skimp on research and development. Uh, to, they need to maintain their edge. Yeah, it, it, I mean, one more thing I, I did notice too is, it, it, and I think this is the case with a lot of a lot of these types of companies. But the instruments are closed systems. They noted, in other words, you basically have to purchase their consumables in order to be able to have that stuff working with their equipment. And that um, it reminds me of you know, companies, I, I think, you, know, you look at a company like IDEX, for example, Massimo, I think, is the one that really stands out for me. Massimo has done a great job protecting their intellectual property in that regard. Um, and it seems like, in this case, OrthoClinical, uh, they too. I mean, if, if you're going to use their stuff, you've got to use all their stuff. It's not like you're going to go out there and buy uh, cheaper knockoff tests to be able to run through their equipment. Yeah, they need to defend their turf, and they have spent a great deal of time to build up their turf. So they have over twenty thousand of their uh, their systems uh, installed uh, globally. That figure seems to grow in the low single digits each year, about five percent. So again, it's very expensive for this company to go out to acquire new customers to convince these hospitals to switch them. So once they're in there, they better do a good job of hanging on to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the weaknesses here with this business because i mean every every dog has a flea or two right i mean i'm not calling this company a dog but you get what i'm saying it's uh you know no no company no company comes without its weaknesses and and i wonder if there's anything that stands out to you with a business like this or or, uh either in regard to the business model or the financials or management something like that what what are some of the weaknesses you found in this business 
So I think the business itself is actually pretty pretty darn strong. I really like how entrenched this company is. I really like the razor and blade model. Uh, their gross margin on a uh, company-wide is about 47%. Uh, that's not as high as I was hoping it would be, given that this company is essentially 100% blade at this point, but that's not necessarily a, a terrible uh, a number. One of the things that I would knock this company for is that it is not a high-growth company uh, by any stretch. I mean, when you've been in business for 80 years and you already have seven percent of the hospitals in the U.S., it's really hard to eke out growth. And this company's top line is very, very predictable. Uh, however, it only grows in like a two, three, four percent range uh, over the last five years. And in 2020, because of all the disruption that we saw uh, in hospitals, uh, the, the company's top line actually fell uh, to, uh, is expected to fall uh, about two percent. That's not something that uh, is a good thing, of course, and it's even more surprising considering that this company does offer uh, COVID testing. So to me, a lack of organic growth is a weakness for this business. Yeah, 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 no doubt about that. I wonder too, you, you think with a business like this, I mean, clearly, I mean, the healthcare system is the healthcare system is involved to say the least. And, and uh, given that their customers are really the hospitals and the health systems and, and those customers are generally beholden to the third-party payers, right? Medicare, Medicaid, uh, insurance. I, I mean, they don't necessarily always get to dictate their terms on how much they're getting paid. Yeah, there is definitely negotiation in there. And again, this company has been involved with healthcare for uh, 80 plus years. The other side of that too is if this cup this company has obviously achieved uh, scale and it's obviously gotten out there so kind of having a lower gross margin does protect it from the competition because it's not like it won't be easy for somebody else to come in and say uh, switch to us we'll save you money because this company isn't gouging its customers uh, as it is. So it is just something worth worth noting. The real big knock against this company that I have, though, uh, is its balance sheet. Uh, and to understand its balance sheet, you need to back up a little bit. So again, it was a part of Johnson & Johnson. It was actually sold to the Carlisle Group uh, uh, several years ago. And the Carlisle Group really seemed to lever this thing uh, up with debt, as we've seen uh, private owners do uh, some sometimes. So uh, this company is estimated to have $3.7 billion billion dollars in debt uh, as of January. And one of the reasons that it's going public is to just knock down that debt load. So it's going to, it raised $1.2 billion at the IPO. And they said right in the documentation, we plan to use (laughs) 1.1 billion of that to knock down our debt load. Even then, this company is going to have $2.6, $2.7 billion in debt, and this is a $4 billion company. So that is a still, even after dropping a billion dollars, that's still a huge number. It is. You know, I, I agree. And that's, I always, I always, I control F and I search use of proceeds immediately in those S1s and just, just get right down to it. And, and a lot of times, and that's something, I mean, listeners and, and, and members and always ask, I mean, what, you know, when companies go public, what are they doing with this money? And oftentimes, I mean, they're taking that money to grow the business. Um, but that's not always the case. And in this case, it's not, right? I mean, just like you said, I mean, they're using this money to pay down debt, essentially to to pay down other folks who had investments in this business and ultimately pay down the debt load of the business. Um, so, it's not money that necessarily is going to grow the business. I agree with you. I mean, it's one of those things whenever I see that, it's not something that makes me run the other direction, but I definitely take note. It makes me think, hmm, 
Now, the flip side of that, of course, and, we, and we've addressed that here uh, thus far, is it does have a fairly reliable business model in that sort of annuity. Um, so, so, I guess that's one of those things, and that's why I asked you earlier, because it, to me, it's I do, I do give them a little wiggle room there because of the business model, but by the same token, I'd like to see a track record of knowing that they can take this money that they're generating and, and, and you know, grow the business, do more with it, um, and be responsible with that balance sheet, because it does, it does feel like right now that balance sheet is a little bit of a headwind. Um, it, it, Balance sheets are the responsibility of management. What have you found out about management with this company? So the CEO here is a guy named uh, Chris Smith. And uh, I always like it when companies like this at least have, uh, obviously the founder is not involved in this business, but I always like seeing at least uh, the CEO has come up through the ranks and has been with the business for a long period of time. Uh, That's not what we have here. We have the CEO, his name is Chris Smith. He was hired in September of 2019. Now he was the CEO of another healthcare company called Cochlear uh, Limited. He seems to check all the boxes from what you want uh, in a uh, medical uh, medical device executive, uh, but I really don't like that he's kind of brand new uh, to to this business. Uh, there's obviously a deep bench of people behind him, but make no mistake, he's the CEO. He's the most important character. And as our due, part of our due diligence, we always go over to Glassdoor. I like to check that. Uh, the ratings there were okay. Uh, so the company got 3.8 stars out of five, and uh, uh, Smith got a uh, 73% CEO approval rating. That's on the okay range. That's not great. That's certainly not terrible. Uh, from an ownership uh, perspective, uh, he owns, uh, he's going to own about a million shares uh, of stock. So at current prices, that's worth, say, $18 uh, million. But the Carlisle, uh, Carlisle Group is still the primary uh, shareholder here. They still, even post IPO, own 61% uh, of this business. So wow. whatever they say and whoever they want in charge <laughs> is really what matters. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point and, and, and very well noted there. And that, that certainly will play out on the, the shares that trade on the open market get the float. Um, yeah, it, it, it sounds like at the end of the day, you're still kind of just uh, going with whatever uh, Carlisle says. I mean, until it's, uh, if there's if there's a point where Carlisle is looking for an exit strategy, and perhaps that is the case, um, as, as time goes on, it, it'll be interesting to see how their ownership stake in this company evolves. If it's something that they maintain, or if it's something that they start to to whittle away at over time, um, I, you know, that just remains to be seen. Uh, okay, Brian, let's let's just try to whittle this down then to an ultimate uh, takeaway here from an investment perspective. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, when it comes to IPOs, I I, I personally tend to be a little bit more careful, and and, and I, I like to give them a little bit of time to establish themselves. Um, develop a track record as a publicly traded company. Uh, to me. This is a neat business. It's interesting in a lot of ways. I do love a razor and blade business model. I mean, I still I would put this business in that category of you know what, it's interesting to me, but I, I want to give it a little time before I actually uh, feel feel comfortable making a call one way or another on it. Yeah, for for me, this is a, a definitely a, a no go. I mean, I I agree with you completely. I really like uh, the entrenched nature of the business. I really like that it's a a blade model that that the revenue is. Extremely 
extremely uh, dependable. I like that they have a uh, new test that they're coming out with, and they seem to have made the case that they have uh, decent growth uh, prospects. They're basically saying that the entire market for our, our products is growing about 5% annually due to the increased uh, the aging of the global population and the increased need for uh, diagnostic testing. Uh, I buy all that, and I think this company has a legitimate chance to continue growing its top line at a, at a moderate uh, pace. The thing I really don't like about this company is just its capital structure. I mean, all of the proceeds from this are going to pay down debt, which they need to do. Uh, for example, in the first nine months of 2020, the company made $48 million in operating profit. Uh, but all of that and more was overwhelmed by the interest expense on the debt, which was $150 million. So this company's actually been losing money on the bottom line for the last five years. At this stage of the game, I would expect this company to be ridiculously profitable, if not a, <laughs> if not a dividend aristocrat um, at, at this point. So if they were able to use a lot of the proceeds and really clean up the balance sheet and get some modest growth in there, as well as if you could give me a really cheap purchase price, I would be interested in it. But to, given what we know right now, this is a business that I'm taking a pass on. Yeah, I mean, you, I guess you answered my really my 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 final question. There is, what would it take uh, for you to be interested in this? I mean, it, it does. I mean, I, your your concerns, I think, are all really spot on. They make sense to me. And yeah, price it seems is just kind of difficult to figure out at this point. But to your point there, I mean, yeah, it, it is it is concerning the profitability. Um, a really cheap price would be a great start. <laughs> that never hurts. Um, so I guess you know, at the end of the day, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, watch how this business develops. Certainly, one worth keeping an eye on, I think, but but not one I would put there at the top of the list as far as oh, these are IPOs that you you need to get out there and really really be a part of uh, early on. Because while there are a lot of positive aspects to the business, clearly there are some things that investors should keep an eye on, and I feel like we made pretty good note of that today. Thanks to you, so. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to uh, dig into uh, OrthoClinical for us, uh, and, and and teach us a little bit more about this testing business and and its its potential. You know, hey, we'll see, right? Anytime. And it's it's always good to even dig into companies like this that don't necessarily fit your criteria just to show that you have to be picky as an investor and you can be picky. So even if there's things like about this company that you really like, it's really you have to take the whole picture into consideration. And not all the companies are going to pass your checklist. Yeah. And I like that point you made there. Be picky. It's really okay. And, and, and the neat thing about doing this and the reason why I like digging into these IPOs and, and even 10Ks, just when it comes to new businesses, um, is, is it really teaches you how to dig into a company in a short period of time, how to hone your process, how to really sharpen your skills and teach yourself to look for the things that matter most to you as an investor. And that'll be different for everyone, of course. I mean, hopefully we're able to to give give all of our listeners some ideas along the way. But but really, it, it is about being able to, to give that business a look and not sink too much time so that you then feel almost obligated to like the business. Oh, well, I just researched this business for six hours. And in, in hour five, I found something that just really turned me off. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, well, those sunk costs, man, they can sway your decision-making very quickly, and you sometimes don't even realize it. So, so I think these are, great, uh, these are great drills for us to kind of practice as investors and, and really really you know, hone, our, hone our skills in finding those disqualifiers, those things that matter most to us. And it sounds like, it sounds like you've certainly been able to find the things that matter most to you here. 
Yeah, that's that, that's right. And, and to be clear, this could be an interesting business someday. And it's definitely not priced at some insane uh, number. I mean, we've seen so many IPOs come out and just pop like crazy. This stock actually went down on the first day that it's trading. And it's basically been trading sideways ever since. And even now, it's trading at about two times sales and only five times gross profit. So if the company's capital structure was fixed over time, this could be an interesting investment. But for me, just right now, it's not. Well, we will see. And Brian, I promise you a wildcard Wednesday in the future. We will circle back on this thing and take a look at it and revisit. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, remember, you can always reach out to us at Twitter on MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Brian Feraldi, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.